part of our weekend is hearing what God is actually doing and has done in the lives of people. Uh, people, uh, real people with real stories and, and uh, how he has, with by his grace, acted. And so tonight and tomorrow night, we have a chance to hear two testimonies. Tonight, Christopher Yuan and his parents, Leon and Angela, are going to be sharing with us. Uh, tomorrow night at First Baptist, Rachel is going to be sharing her story. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be drilling in a little bit more deeper into what does Scripture say about these questions, um, both in terms of uh, what it says about homosexuality, what does it say about God's vision for gender and sexuality, and what it looks like in terms of human flourishing, and then what does it say in terms of our posture and response. And so it's going to be a good weekend, but tonight I want to welcome up Christopher and Leon and Angela. Uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan has taught the Bible, has taught, yeah, the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for 10 years now and is speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences on college campuses and in churches. He graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005 from Wheaton College Graduate School in 2007 with a Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis, which is where I met Christopher. We were in grad school together, and so he was a very studious student. He did very well. Uh, and, uh, and he received his Doctorate of Ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan have experienced much heartache due to a prodigal son who embraced homosexuality. But God has given them grace to rely on his power to change the unchangeable and focus upon their daily renewal and transformation. And so Angela and Christopher have also uh, shared, their, shared their amazing story in a memoir that they co-wrote uh, called Out of a Far Country. Uh, a Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. You can find this at the book table, and I encourage you uh, this weekend at some point to pick up a copy of their story. It's uh, beautifully written, and it's a beautiful tribute to God's grace uh, in their life. So uh, come on up and uh, share with us this evening. Welcome uh, the Yuans. America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was. <laughs> the first night, I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were in masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later. We married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we were simply Live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. 
So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do anything about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the ultimatum to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have caught me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope, had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all with only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister. I bought on the train thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife, Angela. The lady was 
very, very excited and told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her this is not a good news. This is the worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I start going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us a, to a Bible study, study called the BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of and love for God and His Word. While studying the Word of God in my church, in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead as our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. <laughs> Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different. I acted different. And I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house. At nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, pornography has become the master of many youth and adults, men and women. Many of us don't know how easily accessible it is on the Internet and do little or nothing to protect ourselves and our families from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? There's a few other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries. Take the major television networks. Um, their combined avenue revenue, ABC, CBS, and NBC, their combined annual revenue is $6.2 billion. The combined annual revenue of the major league sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, is $12 billion. But if we were to add up the annual revenues of these, uh, of these two industries, they would pale in comparison to the annual revenue of the pornography industry. $57 billion. We are in an all-out war with the pornography industry. And to be honest, we're losing miserably. Even scarier, statistics say 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the Internet. 8 to 16. Even scarier, 1 out of 5 kids aged 10 to 16 have received a sexual solicitation over the Internet by a predator. And most of the time, the kids had no idea. It's time we realize we are in a new world. We can no longer think that we can get by with not talking to our kids about sex. We can no longer get by and think we can 
just talk to our kids that one time in their lifetime when they're teenagers to talk about sex. Our kids are being flooded with resources on sexuality on a daily basis from kindergarten. So for us as Christians to think, and it's great we have Christian um, high schools, uh, Christian schools, and also homeschooling are great options, but unless you lock your kids in a room and they don't watch television and they don't engage with other kids, don't think that there isn't the possibility that they will be introduced to these concepts. So parents, actually the question that, that I often hear from parents is, when is it too young, or is it too young to talk, you know, is it too early to talk to my kids? Actually, I think the correct question is, when is it too late? Because if we're not the first people to talk to our kids about sex and sexuality, I think we're late. Shouldn't we parents be the first? Today, our kids hear about it from the playground, from their peers, from television. Even Disney is fair game now. Kindergarten. And teachers don't have to tell you, parents, that they're, they will just slip it in and talk about, well, you know, some people have two mommies and just, they're not even talking about it. It's not a part of the curriculum, but they will throw that in there. Our libraries, public libraries, are full of stories, and they're very engaging stories about nice people. So if we are on the back end of talking about sexuality, we have a lot of catch-up to do. Um, there's a few things in light of all the, that's out there with, on the Internet that's, that's good stuff. Something my parents and I advocate is having double Internet protection having an internet filter and an accountability program. Sometimes uh, programs have both of these together. A filter blocks questionable sites from being viewed, but as we know, not, there's no perfect computer program. So sometimes uh, sites are viewed and get around the, the filter. So having an accountability program that logs in what sites are viewed. Uh, two programs that we like to talk about, and there's many others, um, and I put these up there because both of these are free. A lot of times uh, I minister and mentor college kids. College kids don't have a lot of money. They can't afford the uh, monthly fee for a filter. So these two are free. One is uh, k9webprotection.com and the other one is x3watch.com. Um, there's, they, they offer a free, it's, it's kind of hard to, to find it uh, from their homepage. They offer their paid filter, which is also very good. Actually, I'll, I'll give you some that are the ones you can pay for that are good. Uh, Covenant Eye is a good one. Net Nanny is another one. Um, and uh, there's another one I just forget. But there's other ones that are paid for that have much more functionality because you pay for it. But I know I, I always want to give people these two options. So if you're thinking through, actually, as a matter of fact, I think everyone should have a filter on their computer. Even if this is not something maybe that you particularly struggle with, but as you know, sometimes you, you, I mean, you could accidentally type in a wrong URL and something that you don't want to see pops up or you get uh, stuff that's thrown at you. If you have kids, you definitely, definitely, please parents hear this. If you don't already have filters on your computer, put it on, not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, tonight. So you, everyone, you can get, feel free, get out your pen and paper, write this down. These are free ones and the other ones, uh, and it doesn't take much. I would even look into ones that have 
one for mobile devices, because five years ago, it was all about the, the computer programs, but now kids are, are, are looking at on their mobile devices. You can have the computers on your home kind of filtered and, and secure, but kids on their, on their mobile phones, it's really easy to access that. So for me, and, and so when I said nine, I know a lot of people are surprised with that. That's average now. So for us to think that, oh, my nine-year-old, that's too young to talk to them about sex, we're in a new world. And we have to be engaging on this topic. So for me, with sexuality and, and um, the pornography fueling my same-sex attractions, I had my first sexual encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, that was when I finally came out of the closet and I began living openly as a gay man. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which that's what we're all seeking, right? I found that temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I need to be really clear. Not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Some do. Some do not. But that is part of my whole story, and I want to tell you it honestly, honestly and authentically. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus... He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like most of my classmates, I didn't have much money, and if I was going to do drugs, I'd have to find a way to support my habit, and I did that by selling drugs, and I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night, but three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago down to Louisville where I was going to dental school. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. And all they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit. And I would stay in school for three months. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? (laughs) To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important? is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But the sad reality is in America, we have many people who go to churches and worship God on Sundays but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we are making our kids do the same. Parents, are we on a daily, weekly basis putting more emphasis upon our children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good college or university, or... Should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon our children following Jesus? It's no wonder why the majority of kids grow up in church, go off to college, and they leave their faith behind because maybe they were never worshiping God in the, wor- in the first place. When it comes to our kids, nothing really is more important than them following Jesus. 
But can I tell you, I was not happy about my mom's decision. <laughs> she was not on my side. She was on the school's side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. No idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with the encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way we can see our son is we flew from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left it on his counter anyway, and we found out later he took my Bible threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from the Bible Study Fellowship Group, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold but very dangerous prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning she would literally spend hours in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many others. She wrote out some of her prayer and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I was staying until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I was staying in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on the sun, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. 
though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy as we live out those years. And I heard that uh, once uh, uh, Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be leading monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia. And I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. Because I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But actually, my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No braiding words. 
just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And actually, what I was really trying to do was Stay to myself. I didn't want to mingle too much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. <laughs> and I passed by this garbage can. And if you haven't been in jail or prison before, they don't take the trash out every day. So it was overflowing out of the can. It was a mound of rubbish. And as I looked at this, I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorates. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. Actually, I was simply thinking that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have, in our Bibles, is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God and is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. 
I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I have lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. One more time. It is well, it is well with my soul. 
a few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself and actually just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie in my bed and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. Underneath it was scratched and scribbled graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using these words penned by a prophet to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith and enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual, and I wish I could tell you that at that moment I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like I had no more problems. Far from the truth. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs. I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious. But within a few, few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, other dependencies, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, which we're going to talk about tomorrow morning, that, I, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. I'm a new Christian, which meant I don't know that, that much about the Bible, and I'm thinking, well, I want to go ask someone who's more educated about the Bible, who's actually studied it, the chaplain. But to my surprise, this chaplain told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear assertion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification. Chaplain told me God blesses same-sex relationships, and I thought, I want to read that for myself in God's Word. So I looked. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible several times. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. I was at a turning point. 
and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I am, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexual identity, by not allowing my sexual desires to dictate who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned a few important things. First, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know, it might sound weird. The world keeps telling me that it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, I learned that abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a little while, that actually my sexuality doesn't have to be the core of who I am. I told myself God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, God loves me unconditionally, and then I added, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. I know you hear this a lot from people who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, after reading the Bible several times, you know what I found out? That unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more of a godly man I would be. But I realized that, that that's not the goal, that even if I had heterosexual feelings, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature every day. So heterosexuality is not the goal. Besides, God does not command us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I may still be tempted or not. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or not, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. God doesn't promise you come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted again. No, Jesus himself was tempted, but he's without sin. If Jesus was tempted, what makes us think that we won't be tempted? So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability, the spirit-wrought uh, freedom to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, whether I'm still tempted or not, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. 
and he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me into vocational ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. They mailed the application into me to prison, and I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling out my essays and the questions until I got to the last page where they asked me for references, not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickets in prison, (laughs) but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in biblical exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary in 2014, and I also had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote, chapter, she wrote the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, and then, get this, and then God in his power and his grace brought us all back together. Our book now is in seven different languages from Chinese, Korean, Spanish, etc. And in the back of every book is a free eight-week discussion guide that actually several um, small groups are using as curriculum. They're having reading, uh, re- you know, reading clubs, uh, Also, some Christian high schools are using a book as a textbook, and it makes sense. As I said earlier, our kids are being flooded, flooded with resources on sexuality, all from a non-Christian worldview, and we have so few resources that we can actually also engage with our kids on that not only tell but show what biblical sexuality looks like. Um, We've, uh, you know, we've also found out some parents are reading it at home with their kids. So they'll, they'll read it, you know, they'll, they'll go through it through your chapters, and then at dinner time they talk about sex. Isn't that amazing? I think that is. And I'll tell you why that, and I know you parents are like, you're insane. Why would I want to talk about sex at the dining table? Because I'll tell you why. The world is. And if you don't intentionally talk to your kids about sex and sexuality, I promise you the world will. We're all concerned about what we see, you know, uh, you know it, it, what's going on in public schools and what they're teaching there, and therefore we have wonderful Christian schools and homeschooling and all these great options. You know, but in public schools, we have, we have them teaching sex education. You know, you know what's the sex education today? Google. You know the main responsibility to teach sex and sexuality is not the public school's job. 
also, the main responsibility, I think the youth pastor is here, right? I just met the youth pastor. The main responsibility, right? Where's the youth pastor? There you go. The main responsibility to teach sex and sexuality to your kids is not the youth pastor's job. (laughs) The main responsibility to teach your kids about sex and sexuality is not the internet job. Amen? You know whose main responsibility to teach our youth about sex and sexuality? You know whose shoulders that lies on? The parents. And I'm going to add something. The grandparents as well. Some of you might have, you know, kids are home. You're like, I'm, I'm done. You know, wash your hands. Let me tell you, grandparents, you might have more of an ear to these kids than the parents do. I mean, how many of you guys know how, how much kids listen to their parents in their teenage years, Right? But grandparents, you might have more of an ear to these teens than the parents actually do. Use that to your advantage. And this is going to stretch you because you're like, I didn't have to deal with these things back then. You know what? We're in a different world. And if we love our grandkids and we want them to not only know Jesus, but also know how to apply Jesus and the gospel to their own desires and the world and sexuality and all these things. And not, we're not exposing them. We're equipping them. Equipping them to take the gospel and apply it to as, a, as more of, I mean, how more of a relevant issue than sexuality. At, um, we were at, uh, I think in Oklahoma, this really kind of rural town. Uh, actually, it wasn't even a town. It was just it was like Nebraska. It was just flat and just, you know, just <laughs> cornfields. I mean, right? I mean, Nebraska, flat. And I remember it was in the middle of nowhere. I, I mean, everything's like one mile, like the, you know, squ- everything's square. I don't, I, I'm, I'm a suburban boy, so I don't really know about those things. Um, and uh, so really just in the middle of nowhere, you know, you look outside, it's just all open, except a few like tornadoes, you know, Oklahoma. <laughs> And this, we finished talking, and this grandmother, she like made a beeline toward our table. And I happened to be there early. She was like the first one there. She's like, I want 10 books. I was like, wow. I was like, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. And she said, one for myself and nine for my grandchildren. She said, the next day I'm going to mail every one of my grandkids one of these books, and I'm going to talk with read with them and talk with them. That's a grandmother that takes seriously the God-given responsibility that we all have to not expose but equip our kids on this issue of sexuality. Silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then so if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. I'm, now, um, I'll, I'll mention because uh, in the next few talks, I'll be talking about um, some of the things that I'm working on right now in my third book. It's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Sex, desire, and relationship shaped by God's grand story. I, I wanted it to say shaped by biblical and systematic theology, but then my publisher said no one's going to buy it then. And I know that sounds scary, but you know what we need to do? We need to have an idea of how the, the breadth of Scripture informs us on things like this. And, and we've done a lot of good work looking at the different texts, which we're going to do tomorrow, about you know the ethical 
you know, matters regarding our sexual behavior, but how does the image of God inform our concept of sexual desires, of our sexuality? How does our sin nature inform how we understand these desires that feel so innate? How does how do we parse through our, our, the concept of desire and temptation? Is what is right, what is wrong? How do we understand marriage? I have two chapters on marriage. I have two chapters on singleness. How do we understand what it means to build healthy relationships in light of our, all of our desires for intimacy? So that's, that's that next book I'm uh, you know, excited to get. I'm, I'm actually still working on that right now, trying to get it, get it out. Um, but that'll come out later, and I'll be talking about some of that stuff tomorrow. But, you know, as, as I look back upon our lives, most of which we were far, far apart from Christ, I see a lot of bad decisions that I've made in my own life. Some that have resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But, you know, I realized something that actually I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, has ever been promised tomorrow. But don't we take it for granted. None of us have been promised tomorrow here on this good earth, but we take it for granted. You know it took getting HIV for me to realize a profound truth that as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. This world today, I mean, every day goes by and things get crazier and crazier. Life is short. Shootings, earthquakes, tsunamis, mudslides. I mean, the bridge falling in Florida. I mean, life is short. We go overseas and threat of terrorism, threat of nuclear war, orphans, widows, sex trafficking, diseases. When I look at the world we live in today, I know it doesn't need another good Christian. A good Christian who... Might go to church every Sunday, good people in the eyes of man, but honestly doing little for the kingdom of heaven. This world we live in today, 2018, does not need another good Christian. But what this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says or the person on the right says, but they're living to please their heavenly Father. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ, and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. If you're crucified, you're dead. And that's the only way that Christ can live in you. Christians who know that they have to live with a sense of urgency. Because whether you're ready or not, it doesn't matter whether you're ready or not, but whether you are or not, I promise you there will come one day more than the, I promise you more than the very breath that you took, there will come one day where every one of us 
in the blink of an eye, we'll stand before our God, our Creator. And my hope is that He can look in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our God, our Creator, we praise you for how good you are to us. You are the great I am. You are our healer. You are our strong tower. You are our rock. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And you have allowed us to call you Abba. And yet, in our sinfulness, God, we have chased after vain things. Forgive us, O God. God, we have wasted away the time that you've created for us to redeem. Help us, God, to make this day a new day. A new day that you have made. For us to live not just simply pleasing man, to be simply good in the eyes of the world, but to be great in your eyes, which means being the least of these, which means not coming to be served, but coming to serve. God, help us broaden our horizons to be able to minister to those around us wrestling with these issues of sexuality and help us to point people to you, O oh God. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah, and the people of God said, amen.